if you have a family, if you have people that are financially dependent on you, you need life insurance. Okay. So you need to know how much life insurance you actually require, and then more importantly, put it in place. Hey everyone, welcome to the Stay Hungry podcast. Today, have we got a treat for you? We have Joe Woodhouse in the house, financial planner, founder of Family Health 101. So if you want to take control of your finances and build lasting wealth for generations to come, this is the episode for you. Let's go. Joe Woodhouse, how's it going? Yeah, really good, mate. Yourself? Excellent. All great here. All great here. We love to start asking, um, starting everything with the three W's. What do you do? Who? And why? Over to you. Okay, so what do I do? I am, by day, I'm a financial planner. So I help people with their family wealth, basically. So I help people manage their their finances today and in the future. Um, What... Why and who was it? What, who, when? Yeah, so what, who for and why? Oh, who for? So my clients are predominantly based, British expats based in the Middle East. Um, That's because I lived out there for 10 years. I've also got clients in the UK as well. And why? I suppose really I fell into it from a young age. So I left school at 16 and I was of the upbringing of without a degree, you'll be a bin man. And I didn't want to be a bin man. So I got pushed into going to college. And then in the meantime, my mum got me an interview with a local bank. Right. um, Which I didn't want, to be honest. I didn't want the job. I just, I was happy. I was 16 year old. I was happy sat at home playing on my Xbox all day. Nice. Like, no, you're 16 now. You need to get a job. So I then went along to this interview, got a job, left the interview, still not knowing what the job was other than I'm going to work at a bank. And then I started working on Saturdays as a cashier at Lloyds Bank in Sheffield. And I just fell in love with the whole process that not so much the balancing my till side, that was horrendous. Like I got, I think I got the record for the most, most till errors. So if you wanted free money, come to my till. See, I've been a Lloyds customer for 40 years. Wish I'd known that. Oh man, I was, I was so bad. But I think the only reason they didn't sack me was because of the revenue that I brought the bank in. Because I felt I just I fell in love with the whole sales relationship building that side of things. So I know it's a little bit different now, but this was back in the day when you go into your bank and the cashier would be like, "Do you want your account upgrading? Do you want to speak to manager about a credit card, about a loan? Do you want to invest this money? We've got better savings accounts." And I worked out very very quickly that I could double my salary by introduce by referring on because I used to get three pound for every sale when I was sixteen. Right. And again, I've always been a numbers man. So I worked out if I did this many, this many sales per hour, this many sales per day, this many per week, double my salary. If I was 16 year old and getting paid more as a cashier than anyone in the country. Wow. Um, I I remember the days of my dad putting on his suit to go and see the bank manager, talk to people, getting loans and stuff like that. But obviously going to a bank now, just a row of machines and are those days gone now? Yeah, I think so because they've they've removed targets and there's no there's no sales targets and it's not sales driven anymore like it used to be. But I was like a dog with a bone. Like you did not leave my till until you were sat in front of the manager or you stormed out of the bank and all in disgust because I wouldn't leave you alone. I was that bad. So you must have had the most money out of all your mates then. But how many of your mates would have put in the work that no doubt you had to do to get the money? Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, I grew up in a very working class environment in Sheffield, so all my mates were now the plasterers, the joiners, the electricians, the the, the traders, and there's nothing wrong with that. It was just, I didn't want to do that. I mean, I can't even have a picture frame. Um, and back then, they were all on the old YTS schemes. They were all sort of going to college to learn how to be a plumber, to learn how to be a bricky. So they were earning 100 quid a week. And like I said, for me, I just, I, I just became engrossed in the world of sales. I read every sales book. There was, there was a, I remember there was a book called Kiss, Keep It Simple series, sell in for sell it, sales. And it were, it became a Bible. This book was this big, it was this thick, it was dog-eared, but it went everywhere with me. And I just became obsessed at just getting better at everything. And I'd got my funnel and I knew my stats. I knew how many people I needed to serve, how many I needed to talk to, how many of those would then sit in front of one of the account managers. I knew what their success rate was. I very quickly worked out that he's a better salesman than him. Therefore, he gets first refusal on everything. Um, so you, you must have had some kind of like unofficial like guide or mentor or something or where were you picking this stuff up literally just from books where was that where was that knowledge because I, I know people sort of my age who've been in business sort of 40 odd years who wouldn't know some of the stuff you've already said yeah I, I, you need to find out don't you you need to search it out and because i was that enthusiastic, enthusiastic about it i was everyone's golden boy so and i suppose one of my first mentors a guy called ian twarick and he is the guy that actually made me pack in college right which to my dad's uh disgust my dad didn't speak to me for three months when i did that but i'd been at the i'd been at college like five five weeks and come to the first half term in october and i remember being sat on this row of cashiers and they were 16 year old sort of spotty face me and then all these five middle-aged women who used to mother me they're amazing i still speak to a lot of them today but one had got A-levels, one had got a degree, one had got a master's. And I just thought, you sat here on this row of tills with me and you've got 20 years on me. And then I went over and I spoke to Ian, who at the time was one of the top advisors in the, in the UK, went for all the incentives, all the trips, like won everything. And I said to him, what qualifications did you have at my age? And I'll, I remember like yesterday, he just leant back in his chair and he used to have his toothpick in his mouth. <laughs> Leant back in his chair, took his toothpick out, pointed at me and went, son, when I was your age, couldn't spell my fucking name. And then he picked up this piece of paper out of his drawer, crumpled it up and threw it at me. And I opened it up and it was pacing. And it got more zeros on it than I've ever seen. Wow. And instantly I just went, how do I do this? And he said, what are you, do what are you doing? I said, at college. He's like, why are you at college? I'm like, I don't know. Just because I've got hmm. bullied into it. Like, that's what I told I needed to do to get a job. Um, and he says, if you want to do this, go into college tomorrow, tell them to shove it, and then start working here full time. And that's what I did. That was it. Bloody hell. Because I know a lot of people say, I mean, I went to university simply because I didn't really know what I want to do. Looking back now, I totally admire people oh. who write, I want to be a dentist. I want to be a vet. So I need these qualifications. So I need to go to college, university, whatever. But for other people, there's so many opportunities now. And, and I'll do whatever I can to support my children as long as they're happy. But would I, would I really push them down the university route? It's like, well, well, no, not if it, not if it, unless they're a bit lost or whatever. If it's, it's not the be all and end all. Well, like, like, like you say about your parents, my parents, like doctor and nurse, if I hadn't gone to university, I think they would have like died with shame, to be honest. There was that kind of pressure, what friends and family would say, you know, um, Where's yeah, I got it from the other end of the spectrum, though. So my dad's a market trader, sells second-hand bric-a-brac on Sheffield Market. 
my mum always, she passed away now, God bless her, but she was always a secretary. She worked at school. She worked at the NHS. She worked at the local council, like part-time jobs. So my dad like grew up with nothing, like off the roughest council estate in Sheffield. And like my dad's life goal achievement was to buy a house, to get off the estate and buy his own house. And he did that. I mean, dad did pretty well for himself. But no Woodhouse had ever been to university. And I'm the oldest of seven or eight grandchildren. So I was going to be the first Woodhouse to ever go to uni. And I was always pretty switched on and pretty sharp at school. And my dad had these aspirations and these dreams of me becoming a barrister. So my dad had not had a formal education. My dad left school when he was 12. But I was going to like, I was going to be the golden light sort of thing moving forward and when i packed college and he broke his heart oh right okay. um, uh, but looking back now obviously he wanted the best for me and he still does but i also think there was a bit of ego involved with that so he, like you said yourself so he can tell his mates yeah. my son's a barrister yeah. so he can tell his mates yeah. that my son's got a degree he's the first woodhouse he's the first one in the family ever to do that i um, bet what... that were really that were really difficult for me dad to right. wrap his head around and even when I started doing very well within the bank and winning all these awards, it took me dad a long time to actually come round to the idea. And I think I was only about 30 year old when he actually said, do you know what? You made the right decision. Right. Um, so what do you think when you, you up sticks obviously do tremendously well over in Dubai? I mean, did he ever come, did he come see you over there? Cause it must yeah, have been a bit, yeah, bit different so, from his background from what you say. Yeah, very. So yeah, my dad, you, they used to come out twice a year, my mum and dad. Um, but again, that was the other thing. So I then got this, I got a stable job in Lloyd's. Uh, and I left the UK when I was 22. So I then became an account manager with Lloyd's, worked my way up to one of the senior managers. And then when I was 22, I'm like, right, Dad, I'm packing it all in again. I'm moving to Abu Dhabi. Um, he's like, why? I'm like, the co- for a commission-only job. He's like, what do you mean? I'm like, I don't get a salary. He's like, what do you mean? <laughs> and my dad, my dad couldn't get, I saw the potential with it. Um, but my dad, again, he couldn't get his head around that. He's like, right, you've worked all, you've worked your arse off for the last six years to get to a position where you're at, where you're on a very good salary at 22 year old. You've just bought your first house and wow. you're going to throw it and you're going to throw it all away. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm good. It's an opportunity. And look, I always try and weigh risk and reward with everything. Mm-hmm. And for me, the, the potential reward of doing that could be literally life-changing and luckily it was but the risk of it was i lose this job it doesn't work in i left on good terms in six nine twelve months if it doesn't work i come back to the uk with my tail between my legs a little bit yep. embarrassed i've failed at it but i can always get that job or even maybe a drop a, a, a rung down the ladder and then work my way back up again so that was always there as again, my dad's not a risk taker, so he doesn't, he didn't, he couldn't get his head around that. Yeah, um, I suppose it's interesting you talk about fear of loss, fear of what people might say. Um, a lot of people, you know, they, they wouldn't have moved to Abu Dhabi because, again, what if it doesn't work out? Like, say, I've got to come back to the UK, and then, well, I suppose we all get older and wise and realize that most people they've got their own shit to worry about in the first place. But even now, we still see business owners maybe not, you know, in our field of marketing, not promote themselves as much as they want to because the fear of what some people might say and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, sort of skew a little bit. So obviously you, you've you grown your business a lot organically through Instagram, for example. And, and that's one of the challenges we have, like I said, to stick your head above the parapet 
it takes some confidence because you will attract a few dickheads, I suppose. So, I mean, do you want to quickly share your Instagram story? Because you, you know, we're, we specialize basically on the paid for side of advertising. You have grown your business massively organically. So sort of, you know, how did, how did that come about? What made you think, right, okay, well, I'm doing well. I know there's potential to serve even more people. This is the route I'm going to choose and this is how I'm going to do it. So how that all came about. So I've got, I've, I've always had mentors. I've always had people that, I've always had coaches. I've always had people I've worked with. And a mentor um, who was a mentor of mine for years, and he still is as well, a guy called Spencer Lodge. So this was what, about 2015, 2016? So were you in Abu Dhabi at this point? When, yeah, when, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, I was out in Abu Dhabi, yeah. Um, Spencer's a very good family friend now. And he said, you need to start creating content. He says, you need to stop making videos. I'm like, what? He's like, you need to stop making videos and putting them out. So I played at it for a little while and nothing really came off it. I couldn't find my flow. I wasn't comfortable on camera. I didn't like, I hated making them. What kind of content were you putting out? Like what sort of other people in your industry were sharing yeah, tips it, and stuff? It, yeah, it was stuffier. I was holding myself back. It were trying to... What is a pension? What is his current account? What is this? What is that? It was very much product driven. Right. Okay. Um, it's that's what I thought people wanted to hear. And, but it was boring and I wasn't as confident in myself then. It's like anything, you need to put 10,000 hours, hours in, don't you? Yeah, like absolutely. when I first started, they were horrendous. And, and this is the advice I give to anyone. They're like, I love what you do. I want to do that but I'm embarrassed about what people might think. I'm like, two things with that. One, they are going to be shit when you start. Just suck it up. Because the sooner you put the work in, the, the yeah. more you do it, the sooner they're going to get better. And two, nobody's even going to see them. So nobody's going to see them when you start making them anyway, because you've not got a following. So, so be bad now while nobody sees it. And it's only when you start getting good that you'll start getting more followers and you'll start getting more people approach you. Um, that's so but, sound advice that is. and and so did did you see a gradual growth then or was there one thing that like flipped the switch and suddenly you just started getting followers by the hundreds and hundreds no so it took me four years it took me three years of making regular videos to get my first inbound lead inquiry whatever you want to call it um and it it took four years to get from 1200 followers on Instagram to 2000. Um, and the 1200 I started with were just my Facebook friends anyway. Right, okay. And what um, are you at now? How many 20, followers? 28,000. Amazing. 29,000, something like that. Amazing. Um, and pretty much most but, of your inquiries now come through Instagram. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I mean, what, what really did it for me? So again, something that Spen taught me. So I was holding myself back when I start, started making the videos, I got a lot of shit from my quote unquote peers in the industry. So other financial advisors. And there was stuff like he's embarrassing himself. He's an embarrassment to the industry. He's showing himself up. Who does he think he is? Why does he think he's better than us? And so I was really holding myself back on the sorts of stuff I was putting out. So, so how, um, how did you process that kind of feedback? Because again, like, you know, shit and haters that's coming towards you. How did you deal with that? How did you stop that affecting you as much as it could have affected maybe other people? I was very lucky that I had a very strong personality and support network in Spencer, my mentor. And I used to go to him every time, like almost in tears Sundays, because it, it was never, it, it was very rare directly to me. 
But I was getting sent screenshots or WhatsApp messages. He said this, he said that, he said this. And some of the people that were saying it, I thought were very close to me, and that really upset me. Oh, wow. Um, so I went to Sven, and he said something to me almost daily for about three years before it sank in. And it is, your opinion of me is none of my business. And when I really got my head around that, it was like a, a switch just flicked in my head. And when I realised that, look, I'm holding myself back from putting out the content I want to put out because of these people in my industry, who are the only people that will never buy from me, by the way. Yeah, of course. When I put, when I sort of reframed it in that in that way, I'm like, why do I give a toss what they think? And when I got made around that, that's when I stopped putting out like the skits and the funny videos. And I'm not frightened at laughing at myself, which again, I'm in an industry, financial services, where we're very important and we're very stuffy and we're better than everybody else. And we talk down to people. And so the fact that I think where I really resonate with a lot of people is that I'm not frightened of laughing at myself. Don't do my videos in a, I mean, I don't wear a suit anymore. I dress, I dress quite casually like this now because again, I wore a suit from being 16 year old until 32, 33. You wear less wear. in some of your videos, if anyone's no, going to check them out. Videos, yeah. <laughs> but like, I didn't like wearing them. I always had this nervous twitch when I got a tie on. Um, but that was what the industry did. And it was only when I stopped doing that and being more comfortable and being myself. And I do curse. And I, I've got a very strong Yorkshire accent. And I do talk with a bit of slang. And when I drop this stupid accent that I put on, when I start wearing what I want to wear, when I start coming across, I want to come across. And that's when it really picked up. That's what I say. Also increasing. What's that? I was about to say, is that, that line again that your mentor said, what is it? Your, your opinion of me. Your opinion of me is none of my business. Yes, that's what what you think of me is nothing to do with me. Massive, what you want. Massive. Sorry. Yeah. Cat, cat, um, that's brilliant. And, and again, like when I got me around that, it's, it's sort of, I'm not bulletproof, but, that's why I, and I I get the odd negative bit of hate now. Um, no longer from people in my industry. The, the the haters in my industry start went from slagging me off to ignoring me to now it's how do you do it? Yeah, copying you. How much business do you get? <laughs> yeah. And again, I see all these accounts and these videos popping up, which affect some of them are just word for word, like a wish version of mine. Uh, ever fancy uh, that then, sort of coaching your industry then? No. No? Not enough time? <laughs> no. Got no interest in it. Yeah. No, I'll I'll always help people. If people mm. ask me, I'll always help them. I'll go out my way to help them as much as possible. I mean, I've got a few guys that are starting out um, that send me the videos and I help them, give them a few tips and pointers. Um, I'll always help do that, but I, I've got no interest turning that into a course or into a mentorship or mastermind or anything like that. Like I said, I've just I've I'm very conscious of my time and I know what I'm good at and know what I enjoy. And I've always sort of been a believer of anything that I don't want to do, I outsource it, which is why I've got a very good team around me when it comes to sort of my health, my fitness, my everything, my day-to-day living. I, I, if it's something that I've got no interest in, if I don't have the time, the interest or the knowledge to do it myself, I just outsource it and I pay someone yeah, else to do it for Absolutely. Me. Time is a currency of life. And if you can spend yeah. money to, to, yeah, to buy you more time, fantastic. Yeah. So obviously yeah. Abu Dhabi, probably a lot of our listeners are thinking, you know, working in the UAE, you see how amazing it looks on Instagram and everything. Obviously, uh, you and your family had a great time there. You're back here. Um, I, I do remember you, you said to me that 
Um, obviously, there's fantastic wealth over there, but there's also quite a bit of pressure to say keep up with the Joneses, which can create its own problems in terms of how much money you've actually got left in your wallet at the end of the day. I mean, do you think there is a lot of pressure on people sort of wanting to play the A game that you need this car, you need that, and that creates a load of financial problems for them? Thousand percent. So if you ask any expat why they move to the UAE, it's always monetary reasons. Tax-free, better income, better job, better job prospects, create a better life for my family. But then 60% of expats leave the Middle East in a worse financial position than when they actually got there. 60%? Wow. 60%. Yeah. Wow. So, so there's this disconnect somewhere. And where that comes is lifestyle creep, i.e. you earn more, you spend more. And people get sucked into this lifestyle where they get used to going out at all these fancy restaurants, spending a fortune at the weekend. And it, it, look, it's like Durham, which is the currency um, in the UAE, it's like monopoly money. Like, because the denominations are that high, people complete, and I did it as well, people completely, uh, for quite a few years, people completely disconnect themselves to what they're actually spending. Um, and what a lot of people tend to do is they spend and then they save what's left. When in reality, you should save and then spend what's left and create yourself a budget. Um, but like I said, look, I fell into the trap myself. I moved out there when I was 22 in this commission-only job where I didn't get paid a salary. And I started earning money, more money than I could ever imagine. Um, and I just went crazy with it. And I was spending a fortune on all sorts of stuff. And I even went as far as, as mentioned before, I'm a numbers man. So I know all my stats inside out, upside down, and on the red. So I knew exactly what my average client size was. So I stopped looking at expensive things like business class flights and watches and five-star suites in hotels as money and started looking at it as, it's only another client, that. So that's only an extra two deals next week. So I will go into, th- I will buy things with a view of just work a bit harder next week and I'll earn it back. It's not actually cost me anything which is a very dangerous game to play. Right, okay. Um, and what mo- brought me down to earth with a bang was when my wife and I were going through IVF. Right. Um, and it took us five rounds of IVF before we were blessed with my twin boys, Henry and Jasper. And out there... Wow, five rounds in... in yeah, shirt. yeah. There's no NHS, there's no financial support, so you pay for that yourself. Um, and it was sort of at the time, time is never right, is it? So it was at the time when I changed companies, I think I paid for six months with this new firm, uh, new network I was under, mm. and the market was going through, it was like around, around about the time of the Brexit vote, the market was going through a rocky situation. A lot of expats were leaving the Middle East. So <coughs> people weren't buying. I'm at this new company, I'm not getting paid at, and I've got, £15,000, £20,000, £12,000 rounds of IVF leaving my bank account like money. Um, and like I quickly ran out of cash. Right. Okay. And at, at that time, I very much like I played the victim. It, why me? Why can't we have kids? Why is the market shit? Why is everything so expensive? Why don't we live in the UK where I get it free with NHS? And it was only when I stopped that victim mentality and actually took stock of actually no Joe, you're in this massive four bedroom detached house with its own private pool and a huge garden. You've got a housemaid, you've got a full-time driver, you've got two flash cars on the drive. 
you're flying all around business class everywhere you go. You're staying in all these five-star hotels. You're going out brunching every weekend, spending a fortune. And it was only when I worked out what I'd earned as an expat versus what I'd saved as an expat and worked out what money I'd actually spent. And that was a massive realisation for me and also made me then start taking my own advice. So is, is, plan in place. so is that the number one sort of financial mistake you see you see people making? They think it's going to last forever, yeah. and it's not. It must be hard. Well, I'm trying to say it must be hard. I was in my 20s once, but, um, you know, that kind of decade where old age retirement seems like a long way away, spend, 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 worry about it later, I can start investing in my 30s and stuff. Are you, are you sort of saying that, well, the earlier you can start putting money aside in the right places, the better? Or no, fuck it, you know, do enjoy yourself in your 20s, but... I mean, how would you how would you tell like your your kids when they start becoming teenagers, maybe going to college or maybe not? I mean, what's your kind of educational process around not just money but but investments and, and thinking about the future? I mean, I suppose really it's a case of starting them as early as possible. I mean, my my kids it's the birthday next week. So, so how how old are the twins now then? So the boys are five next Wednesday, and Aubrey's two next Wednesday. My daughter. Um, so mine are very young. So just piggy bank age at the moment. Yeah. Do they, do even, those exist anymore. It's all cashless now. Yeah. But even now I'm trying to, like, whenever we go out anywhere, they always pay, like, on my card. Like, I, I, I want to get them used to making transactions. I want to get them used to counting money. I want to get them used to, like, when we go to the, sh- take them to the shops and sweets, I'll give them a pound or whatever it may be. And they need to read the labels and make sure that they've got enough cash or whatever it is to buy. If they pick someone up at two quid, they know that they can't afford that because that's all they've got. And if they come and ask me for more money, I say no. So it's just, let, for now, it's little things like that. And I'll, obviously, I'm guessing this is going to evolve over time as they get older and become more sort of knowledgeable with it. But I will get them. I mean, I, I do now. They do chores around the house, um, jobs around the house that they get paid for that they can then do with that money, whatever they want. Usually spend it on toilet at the weekend or whatever it may be or sweets and as they get older i'll sort of try and increase that and also try getting them in the habit of putting a bit away or even setting a goal of something they want and then the money that i give them a percentage of that goes to whatever you want to do this weekend and a percentage of that goes to this thing that you want whether it be tickets to all towers whether it be a bigger toy or whatever that may be and that's something that my dad did with me right okay, okay. i was so i boxed growing up so as a, as a kid i was always a boxer from being 10 year old to 22 i had 43 amateur fights and as a kid i wanted to be a world champion boxer so i remember my dad that's my dad's market trader i remember my dad being about i was 12 13 year old my dad said what do you want to do when you leave school i'm like i want a box he's like yeah but what do you really want to do i'm like i want a box He's like, yeah, but what's your plan B? I'm like, mm, I'll, I'll come and work on markets with you. You seem to do all right. And it was the biggest mistake I ever made because he, six week holidays were coming up. Week before, he's like, right, I'm going to take you to the markets with me for the summer holidays. I'm like, mm, I want to go out and ride on my bike. He says, no. I said, come on the markets with me and I'll pay you nine pound a day. So my quickly went, my mouth said, tick, 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 tick. I'm like, nine pound a week, nine pound a day, seven, five days, six days a week you were working. Six days a week, six weeks. Why like, that's an Xbox? Yep, I'll come on the markets and work with you. So we went on the so on the first Monday, he gets me before four a.m. We left the house at half four. 
we got in it so we got went to the markets in his van unloaded all his back back of his massive Luton van onto the market stalls stood on the market stalls all day arguing with people buying a cuddly toy at 50 pence I'll give you 30 pence then loaded the van back up again at the end of the day got home unloaded the van loaded the van for the next day and we finished about 6 p.m we're knackered so my dad gives me my earnings my, my nine pound but he gave me pound coins so i said right thanks as i'm walking off he says oh joe says now you're working you need to pay board money i was 13 right 12 or 13. i'm like what's board money so like, well you're working so you need to pay rent and i'm like why he said well what do you think pays for the mortgage the bills the electric sky tv to wash your clothes he says you need to give me a 30 wage I'm like really Third, so, he, so he took three pound off me for board money so i'm a bit pissed off about that so turns around storming upstairs he's oh joe by the way how did you get to the market today i went oh, in your van he says right okay Four and, speed he oil. Pound, and he i need two pound petrol money so he took another two quid off me right so he paid me nine took five off me left me with four so i'm miffed about that next morning gets up going to the market again 4 a.m he says have you got your salary from yesterday says, why do i need that like, what are you going to eat are you going to pay for food so wow. out of the four pound a day what i would net in I then had to buy breakfast and lunch every single day. So I very quickly worked out that if I went into the cafe in the market and begged them and told them that my dad weren't paying me, they'd give me a few, <laughs> give me bits of free food. <laughs> and did you last all six weeks? I didn't have a choice. And so end of day four, I'm like, I don't want to work at market here anymore, Dad. It just went tough, you've committed. And he dragged me there for the entire six weeks. Wow. Kicking and screaming a lot of days. Um, one of the days he physically picked me out of bed, carried me downstairs and put me in his van. Um, yeah, and then well, at the end of the six-week holidays, said to me again, what do you want to do when you leave school? And I said, I still don't know, but I just know I don't want to work on the markets with you. And he went, right. Job done. And then he, he never asked me again. I think my first job when I was 16, working in the factories, um, like packing poppadoms was my first job. And yeah, tenner a week, <laughs> always had to go to mum for housekeeping, tenner a week, tenner a week. Whereas yeah. all of my mates who were working, they couldn't believe it. Your mum's taking money off you. It's like, well, yeah, she's doing all my washing, the ironing, the cooking, all costs. But yeah, yeah. but it's a good education. So when you see yeah. the tax man, you see your mum, there's only a certain amount of money left and that's that's life. Yeah. And to be fair, when I bought my first house, they gave me every penny back and then some, to, wow. to be honest. Wow. So, what's, um, um, so I mean, money habits, I guess they are, like most habits, they are formed as kids. So, so your biggest financial influence until until you met the chap at Lloyd's was that your dad, or were there other people in your in other peer groups that sort of shaped your money habits? Uh, no, I think it was my, it was my dad. But you don't realise as a kid, do you? No, it was no, just no. ingrained into me. So my dad's a proper Yorkshireman, squeaks when he walks, knows the value of a quid, but all, has always done really well. Does he still work yeah. now, or did he retire at a... No, a, my, my dad's still... He'll never retire, my dad. He's more for in boredom out than anything. He probably could retire. My dad's 61 Right, now. okay. Um, but my mum passed away a couple of years ago, and they've been together since they were 14. So my dad, without... My dad was my mum and work. Like, working my mum, that was my dad's life, me, me and my brother. So now it's... As, I think it's as much to fill his time than anything. Mm. Uh, my brother works on the, my younger brother works on the markets with him as well. So again, they, I think they enjoy, and they enjoy the camaraderie with him. My dad loves it. Like, my dad loves meeting people. My dad is a born salesman. 
and he could have quite happily put his hand to anything. I think my dad would be very, very good in a, another life in my industry. It just so happened that he fell into selling bric-a-brac um, at Sheffield Market at a young age. But I say, ultimately, you know, as business owners, we we do need to sell. You can be amazing at, you know, marketing, but if you can't take that prospect, that lead, whatever you want to call, and convert them to, to make the till ring, you're, you're fighting a losing battle. So Yeah, and, and this is something I preach about a lot. So for me, two key skills that should be taught to kids in school, one is about finance and second is sales. I don't care whatever industry you're in, or even if you're not working, like I'm selling my kids to get dressed in the morning. I am selling my kids to go to bed at a reasonable hour at night. I'm selling my kids to eat their dinner. Um, you, you need sales in every aspect of yeah. your life. And That's- that should be taught and then instead of the periodic table, <laughs> instead of trigonometry. Now, look, even if you go into a job where you need trigonometry or you need the periodic table, which for most people, they never will. But even if you do, you still need to learn how to sell. And guess what? You're going to get paid at the end of the month, your salary. You need to know how to manage that. But I actually think it's criminal that kids aren't being taught this in schools. I know it's, it's, I mean, the responsibility on us as parents, because like you say, there, there are so many real life examples. I'm all, you know, like I say, if you want to learn trigonometry and that's kind of job you go into, you want to be a math teacher. Great. But some of the basic skills, and we're very aware of that, you know, yourself, myself, my family, but there might be parents out there who, who do sort of expect the school to teach them everything. It's like, well, no, they'll teach them the algebra, but when it comes to life skills, money sales business whatever yeah. a lot of that's lots of that's down to us and like i say maybe sales that's one of the things that we're also taught um from a young a young age that oh salesmen they're pushy they got shiny suits or whatever and it's got a bit of a bad rep but there are so many shit sales people out there you gotta remember that no like you say sales is an essential part of running a business because you you've got to make the till ring yeah, so. and it, it, like I say, unfortunately, it's a, it's a dirty word. Yeah. And it shouldn't be. Call it negotiation, then call it whatever you want. It's the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, getting, it's getting across your point as well as possible. That's all it is. Absolutely. Um, so, so, yeah. so let's say someone, um, you know, sees your Instagram, they get in touch mm-hmm. with you, um, you know, your team identify, you can help them. Sort of some, what, what are the, the, the non-negotiables? The kind of, I know... You know, I don't know whether we have to give some kind of disclaimer about this is not financial advice, whatever. But, you know, what are the kind of non-negotiables to consider when it comes to savings and investments? What to do with, you earn a certain amount of money, what do you do with some of it? Okay, so I always try and break this down to sort of simple steps and take them one at a time. The number one question I get is, what is the best investment I can make? And with a lot of time, I say to people, look, that's the wrong question that you're asking. So... First, we need to make sure that you box certain things off. So first things first, have you got adequate protection in place for today? Forget investing for the future. If something happens to you today, are you and are your family taken care of? Okay. So if you have a family, if you have people that are financially dependent on you, you need life insurance. Okay. So you need to know how much life insurance you actually require. And then more importantly, put it in place because- if you didn't come home tonight, Andy, and you're the main breadwinner in your house, how old are, you, how old are you, the girls? Um, I think I've got a terrible now. Uh, 16 or 13. Right, okay. So if we take your youngest, she's potentially going to be financially dependent on you for at least the next 11 years if she goes to university, okay? So you need to make sure that your income is replaced for at least the next 11 years and then so. 
Okay. So that for me is a non-negotiable. Okay. And it's something that I even get people to sign a disclaimer, uh, quite a horrible disclaimer as well. If, if I get that, I don't believe in life insurance. It's a waste of money. I'm like, if you want me to help you with anything else, you and your wife sign this then. Wow. Which, which basically says, I understand I have a shortfall of X. However, I don't believe it's important to protect my family if I was to die today. Wow. They just think they're going to live forever or something. Yeah. Wow. And I make and I make husband and wife sign it. Wow. So because life insurance. The last thing I want is in two or three years' time something happens, and then his wife come back to me and say, "Why didn't you speak to us about that?" Yeah, well, wow. no, it's my duty of care to make sure you understand this properly. Wow. So life insurance uh, and a will, I presume, or a, a, yeah. some people out there, business owners, still don't have wills. Do you find, or has everyone got a will now? I don't know. Or a good will. It's crazy. It's crazy. So again, you need to make sure a will is in place. Which look, a will isn't expensive. You can get one for a few hundred quid with a solicitor. Don't do it online yourself. Go to a property solicitor and get a will made. Okay. And all a will is, it just tells you tells your money where to go or tells the state where to send your money when you die. If you don't have a will, especially if you are not married, it's not a case of everything goes to your, your other half. They only get a certain amount, then the rest gets split between the kids. Mm. So especially especially if, if you had a previous relationship with children with someone else and that would be your old writer shitstorm, I imagine. Exactly. So life insurance will, and also critical illness cover. So what, what that is basically, if a doctor taps you on the shoulder today and says you are diagnosed with a serious illness, whether it's you've had a heart attack, a stroke, cancer, you have a serious accident, there is a policy you can take out what pays you a lump sum. Now, the reason this is really important, especially if you're a business owner, like I assume a lot of your listeners are, is with most businesses, if you don't work for the next 18 months, your business you yeah. won't earn an income for the next 18 months. Therefore, and if you're get, going through chemotherapy with cancer or you're going through some serious illness, the last thing you want to be doing is fighting that, trying to recover, as well as worrying about money. So what this insurance policy does, it pays you out a lump sum, which takes that off your plate. So you've not got to worry yeah. about money while ever you're recovering. So you can focus your entire energy and your efforts on recovering and spending time with your family. Okay. Which anyone who's ever got cancer in my opinion, doesn't say, I wish I can go out and earn more money tomorrow. It's, I wish I could spend more time with my family. So after insurance, that's the first step. What sort of next things that people, or some, some things people can consider? Clear off any unsecured debts. So number two, make sure your debts are cleared. So loans, credit cards, overdrafts, store cards, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, because again, if you're, paying all this debt out is then going to massively restrict what you can actually do with your money moving forward. So secondly is get your debt cleared off. Third is make sure you've got six months expenses saved in a separate bank account. This is your emergency pot. Six, right? Shit. So, <laughs> I, I, I thought three in the old days. Is it six now? Shit. Okay. Well, again, obviously it depends who you're speaking to, but I always tell people to have yeah. six months. Well, okay. And the, and look, again, risk reward of that. The risk of that is, look, if, if it's three to six months, it's an extra three months savings that you're not earning any interest on. Yes, it is going to go backwards if you take inflation into account. But if you don't have that and the shit is the fan, it means you're either trying to dip in, in your investments or you're bouncing off credit cards. Either way, it'll take you 10 steps back. So having six months there, in my opinion, covers if you're off sick, should cover if you're off sick. It gives you six months to get a new job if you get laid off. 
or if your business goes under or whatever it may be if you're a business owner if the boiler breaks down if the car breaks down if the kitchen roof falls in it's having that money there for the un- unforeseeable yeah. and i always say to people is having a separate bank account and if you're the sort of person that dips into it and that sees that shiny new thing that they want and thinks oh, i'll put it back next month i'll buy it and i'll now put the money back next month you never do so if you need a bit of friction there what i always say to people is go into town if you bank let's say let's use my example bank with Lloyd's, go into town pay to park your car go into NatWest, queue up in NatWest for 45 minutes however long you've got to wait these days open the savings account with NatWest, cut the card up straight away don't register for online banking don't register for phone banking <coughs> go home set a standing order up from your Lloyd's account at the end of every month to go into that NetWest account. So therefore, if, if you want to get money out of that NetWest account, you need to repeat the same process. You need to drive into town. You need to pay to pay the car. You need to queue up 45 minutes. You need to wait at the till. You need to have the, 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 the cashier interrogate you what you want this money for. Then you come out with the cash. Hopefully, those barriers that you're putting in place there, by the time you get to the front of that queue will make you think, is this really an emergency oh, or am is... I just trying to buy a new shiny TV? That sounds so simple, but yeah, very effective. Like you say, all it needs is a little bit of effort and that'll put off a lot of people. Yeah. Cause yeah, yeah. We, we've got like a sort of a joint savings account, but I hadn't sort of realized that it was my wife's slush fund. So I was like on Amazon, <laughs> why, why are you paying for stuff on Amazon through that? Well, that's what I do. I'm like, Oh, that's how it works. And so I sort of realized that now. Um, but yeah, having, um, having a separate savings account away from your own bank. That's brilliant. Yep. Um, so when it comes to like investments, obviously people or maybe were talking about crypto yeah. or investing, that kind of thing. Um, any, any, any ideas you can share on, yeah, on so that? First thing I say to people is know why you're investing. Okay. So make it a tangent. I know you and I have spoke about it before. We're very goal oriented people, but make it, make it a very tangible goal and make the goal bigger than yourself. So if we take your daughters into account, so, well, if you take my kids into account, because I know the numbers for this. So if, so for all three of my, and I always spoke about, I didn't go to university and I will never push my children to go to university. I'll let them do whatever they want to do. But if they want to go to university, I want to have the funds there so I can pay for everything. Uni fees, rent, living costs. I don't want my kids, if they want to go to uni at 24, leaving uni, never worked a day in their life in a proper full-time job and having 800 grand noose around the neck of debt, like a lot of students. Well, I saw that video you did recently about the, the government's changing student loans and that you could end up just paying them off till till you fucking retire. Yeah, yeah. So as it stands now, a student loan, you pay it for 30 years or until it's paid off. So for most people, they pay it for 30 years. That 30 years is increasing to 40 years. So again, if you graduate at 24 you're potentially paying your student loan until you're 64. Wow. So it's, it's, and it works out like an additional 9% tax. So it's actually a graduate tax now. So all this, I'll let my kids get a student loan because mm. that's what I had to do. In, in my opinion, it's bullshit. It's yeah. just you making excuses for yourself on yeah. why you're not putting, your own, putting money away for your kids. Yeah. So, so having that strong wine, working that out, so you know, to put it, say if all your three kids did want to go to university in... 15 16 years time this 650 is kind of grand shit right okay so for all three amounts going to uni with inflation and me pay for everything it's going to cost me 650 grand but i know that number 
So now I know that number, I can funnel that back to today. So I know exactly what I need to do today in order to get them there. So, and again, I've done a mixture of a lump sum for each and on a monthly regular basis. But I also know if this month, because I'm going on holiday at the end of the month, if I think, do you know what, I'm not going to invest this month and I'll catch up. I know potentially that means that Henry or Jasper might not be able to go to university when they're 18. One of them, bear in mind the twins, one of them I might have to hold back a year because I can only afford to send one. Or likewise with Aubrey. I might be able to, I'll be able to send Henry and Jasper. But then three years later when Aubrey says, right, Dad, I want to university, I want to be a vet, I'm like, let's take a gap year first, sweetheart. Let's just wait a year. Not yet. Or do you really want to be a vet? <laughs> so again, it's having that, making that goal bigger than myself. Because I know if I don't invest this month, there is a chance that in 13 years' time, I have to pick which one. And this sounds quite dramatic, but this is the way you need to frame it. In 13 years' time, potentially, I have to pick my favourite twin. Because if I don't put yeah. this money away, I can only afford to send one of them, not both of them. So it's doing that. And it's same for retirement. So again, if you want to retire at 60, 65, it's working out what sort of lifestyle you would want, factoring inflation, and then follow it back to today. And knowing full well, if I don't put this money away, you're not retiring at 65. You're going to have to work till you're 70. Or you're going to have to start stacking shelves at Tesco for five years or, or until the day you die which is something I am not willing to do. You know, just gen- generally thinking now of three families I know who have got three or four kids each and not all of the kids have gone to private school because they couldn't afford it. So they've sent, say, two of their kids to private school, third or not, and the chip on their shoulder. So these are people my age now. The chip on the shoulder they've grown up with because their two elder siblings went to private school, but mum and dad didn't send them because of financial reasons, which is not the kids' yeah. fault. That, that's had quite a long-lasting effect on them. Oh, he's bound to do. Bound to do. So, so what? Uh, what? Any other sort of so yeah, top so, tips you so, can uh, share? Yeah. So, know why you're investing. Once you know mm. why you're investing, I always say investing things what paying income. Okay. So the way I look at this, you've got saving, speculating, investing. So saving is money in your bank account. That's your emergency part. It's never going to earn you any interest, but it's instant access. We know we can get out straight away. Okay. Secondly, is speculating. Now, for me, speculating is buying something what has no value to you today, i.e. it doesn't pay you an income. So, and this divides opinion, especially amongst business owners, because everyone loves a good cryptocurrency and NFT. <laughs> but this, again, for me, crypto, NFTs, or even physical gold, it's, it's not an investment, it's a speculation. Because you are buying something which pays you no income. And you can hold your Bitcoin for a thousand years, and it will never earn you a penny until the day you come to sell it in its entirety in order to eat, mm-hmm. okay? So for me, that's really risky because you're pinning your entire hopes and dreams on the day you buy it and the day you sell it. That's it. And that for me is not investing, okay? okay? So what investing for me is buying something what gives you two bites of the cherry. So what I mean by that is buying something what while you hold it, it pays you an income in return. And the day you sell it, it's had the opportunity for the capital value of this thing to have grown as well. And there's typically only three ways. One is sort of fixed income, which is bonds, which is essentially you invest your money with a company and in return, they pay you interest payments on it. Secondly is property. So you buy a property, you then rent that property out while you hold it. That's your income, property value, property market increases. Then you come to sell the property. That's your capital gain as well. Or the third is the stock market. So you invest into the stock market 
Um, in return, the company pays you a dividend, which is just a share of their profits as a thank you for investing in us. That's your income. Again, there you come to sell it, stock market's growing value. That is your capital growth. Um, when investing in the stock market, there's thousands of different ways to do it. Don't try to turn into Warren Buffett or some day trader. Just buy a fund what tracks the market. And again, this is something I preach a lot. 99% of the world's population should never buy individual stocks and shares. Okay. What makes you think out of the billion companies out there that you know the best three or four? Most people don't. So just buy a fund what tracks the FTSE, which is the UK stock market. Buy a fund what tracks the S&P, which is the US stock market. And just buy them all. And you get the growth of the markets, but you get a much reduced risk because the age old saying, don't put all your eggs in one basket. So you diversify it. So if you're investing into the FTSE 100, which is the 100 largest companies in the UK, and one of those companies goes bust, it affects the the the, the index on a much smaller scale yeah. because the other 99 will keep it up. If you're investing in two companies and one of those two companies goes bust, bye-bye 50% of your money overnight. Wow. So again, for most people, just buy and invest. And again, for the long term, like, I, I read an interesting stat the other day, these so-called traders, what, charge you 500 quid, copy me, I'll teach you, I'll teach you how to trade and all this. Um, make 50% in a month or whatever bullshit they're touting. I saw a disclaimer at the bottom and it said 86, I'm, I kid you not, I can send it over to you. It was an ad, right? And tiny print at the bottom, to the point I had to screenshot it and zoom in to read it. He said 86, 86% of retail investors on this platform lose money. Shit. 86%. Very, very tiny print though. Good marketing. I bet, yeah, that's, that's terrible. Yeah. That's terrible. But, but again, this is the trade and buy and sell and do this. And, no, no, it's not. It, that's not the way to invest. It's not about timing the markets. It's about time in the markets. Just invest and keep investing because over in the short term, the stock market's bound to round up and down. But over the medium to long term, they only ever go in one direction, which is up. So, so yeah. is that is that sort of like one of the biggest or common mistakes you see people making that they there may be they they've got to take a big risk and they just buy a load of crypto or whatever because they're just attract they don't read the small print they're attracted by the fucking oh, I could like quadruple my money in a week kind of thing. Um, is is that something you you see quite a lot of amongst business owners who I guess generally speaking are willing to take more risks than Joe Public? Yeah, 100%. It's greed. That's all it is. It's greed. Um, and again, and this is why people were jumping on the back of the bandwagon of crypto and NFTs and everything else. People buy things for greed and for ego. I, I have seen no better example of manipulating people's egos than NFTs. So I, I joke about this, that the best thing about, and it's gone quiet now because the market's died off a lot. Yeah. But the best thing about buying an NFT is being able to tell other people you bought an NFT. <laughs> For me, it's pure arrogance. That it, That's it. And I mean, when have you ever gone to Morrison's, bought a loaf of bread, got home, took a photo of it and put that as your Instagram profile photo? Yeah. But people do that with these photos of these monkeys and these pigeons what they're buying it's just to show the world look what i've got i'm in this i'm in this clicky i'm in this clicky group when most of the people that are buying them and i say most because there are some people out there obviously arguably doing what they're talking about but most of the people that are buying them ain't got a clue what they're buying at all they're just jumping on a trend and jumping on the back of a bandwagon 
And a prime example of this is, so Jack Dorsey, the, the founder of Twitter, mm. he sold his first tweet as an NFT. Yeah. For 2.9 million US dollars. And he sold it to a guy who was the owner of a billion dollar valued blockchain company. Okay, so arguably, if anyone knows what they're talking mm. about, it's this fella. Yep. He tried selling it nine months later. He couldn't get $14,000 for it. Shit, I didn't know that. Bloody hell. And Probably worth less now. The, well, yeah. <laughs> but the, mark, the market's too young. Yeah. And, and this is why, again, it's, it's complete speculation. As if you look at the property market and you look at the stock market, we've got 100 years worth of data that backs it up, what I'm saying. As with cryptos and NFTs, the market's very, very young. Yes, some people will make a lot of money doing it. But the people that get, that jump on it last, and I, I always say, look, when butchers and bakers and candlestick makers are telling you what to do with your life savings, it's time to run the other way or do a lot of your own research. Yeah. I mean, the amount of times I've been in taxis and taxi drivers like a good chinwag and they find out what I do and they start advising me, oh, you need to get on NFT and uh. you need to buy these cryptos. <laughs> and I'm like, and I'm like, listen, I'm just putting my headphones in. <laughs> Um, hell. Right, okay. Now, uh, obviously, talk a lot about finance, which is what we want to share with, share with our listeners. But also, always talking. We don't talk about a work life balance. I think nothing's truly balanced. We talk about a work life harmony a lot here at Codebreak. You're obviously okay. a busy man, married, three kids, successful business. Um, any kind of tips that you can share with the listeners about how you manage to dedicate time to everything that's important and the people important to you in your life? Be laser focused with your organisation. Six Ps, proper planning prevents piss poor performance. So I, one thing me and my wife do every Sunday, every Sunday evening, we have a family meeting. So when the kids are old enough to do so, they will be brought into this as well. So every Sunday night, and this is completely non-negotiable, every Sunday night, kids are in bed, we sit down at the dinner table and we map out the week ahead. So my wife knows my work schedule, she knows when I start, she knows when I finish. She knows when my gym sessions are. I know when her gym sessions are. We know when we need childcare. We book in something fun to do with the kids. We book in the days when I'm doing school pickup and school drop-off. We book in uh, a date night or a date day or even just a coffee for an hour mm. every single week. Make sure we find time for ourselves. And we always put something in that we look forward to throughout the week. Um, and that goes in the diary. And once it's in my diary and in the schedule, it's as it's as gospel as any meeting with the most powerful CEO in the Middle East. Like, and it, it once it's in, it's in, and we then stick to it. So that's one thing is just be very, very organized and make sure you communicate as well. Because I mean, my wife's a director of my business. Um, so we are very intertwined with work and relationships uh, with and the relationship. But again, treat it like a partnership. Like, so at the end of the day, if you've had the same happy wife, happy life. So you need to work together on it. Quite life. Um, yeah. <laughs> and also for me, I've got my non-negotiables as well. So, so like, like da what, daily, weekly or? Um, have you got, like, have got, you got daily non-negotiables? Yep. So five o'clock every day, my laptop's closed. Um, I only work for the four days a week, so I take Friday, Saturday, Sunday off, nice. and I I get up 
I get ridiculously early. I've always naturally done anyway, but I'm okay. Is that you, your dad's a, your dad's a thank for that, I guess. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. He's pushed my brother the other way. Like, at weekends, he'll stay in bed till. God. So know, even so, I'm, I don't get it. But I'm a fully paid up member of the five AM club in the summer, but in the winter, when the, the the days get shorter, for me to get up at five to walk. So my non-negotiable, and for the dogs, our dogs' non-negotiable is a walk first thing. So it's hard to walk the dogs in the dark with a torch at five in the morning in the winter time like now it's light it's it's a joy um but do you get up at 5am like all year round i get up at four four shit yeah what time well, do you my get alarm, my what time alarm do you bed? goes off at four but i'm usually before that to be fair i'm in bed at half eight nine o'clock i am i've always been the same i've always been early to bed early riser but i i don't i don't buy into the 5am club i buy into whatever works for mm-hmm. you I know people that are very, very successful that stay up until two in the morning and don't get up until 10 o'clock the next day. That works for them. I, and this took me a long time to get my head around as well when I started growing my team, realising that not everyone's a morning person. And I, I used to, there used to be a kid that worked for me and he left in the end and he, and I know, and he was good and I lost him. And I think mainly because I couldn't, I was a lot less mature at that time. This was in my mid-20s that I used to fight with him to get in the office at eight o'clock every morning. And we used to have these raging battles. And he used to say to me, but I'm better in the afternoons. I'm not good in the morning. And I just couldn't get my head around it because that's what works for me. Mm-hmm. I, I, from, for me, between 4 a.m. and 11 a.m., I am on fire with everything I do. My brain's firing. I'm full of energy. I'm full of beans. But for me, late afternoon, four or five o'clock is where my energy is lowest, usually. Um, so by the time the kids get up for, well, I guess, like nursery or school, you, you've you've done more than a lot of people have done by midday, I guess. Yeah, so my my routine, so I'm up at four. Um, I journal. I do something for my business every single day, whether that be empty my inbox, whether it be send a couple messages to clients, whether it be I always reach out. I always make sure I speak to a client uh, before I go to the gym. I suppose, yeah, what, what's the time difference then? So your clients are in Abu Dhabi, so... Oh, okay. Yeah, three hours. So I'm always sending messages or emails or Instagram or whatever it may be. But I always do something in my business every single morning. Nice. Uh, I say journal, and every morning I do something to make myself sweat and move. Have you bought into so, the whole ice bath thing? I know that won't make you sweat, but are you, are you, you in the ice bath, putting it on Instagram, or...? I, I tried the showers, uh, cold showers. I did it for about nine months. And I didn't really notice much of a difference. I got a chest it. infection. That, that's that's what happened to me. So right, okay, <laughs> um, yeah. I, I, so, yeah. But it works I, for a lot I, of people. That's I, great, I, but yeah. it's individual, I, isn't I, it? Yeah. So I don't buy into that. Okay. So, uh, so you, Jim, because obviously uh, we we mentioned briefly early on that a couple of your Instagram videos maybe you're not wearing too many clothes. <laughs> so go and check that out, everyone. Um, so obviously you keep in shape. So your fitness. What's the kind of non-negotiables around your fitness? Is that is that every day? Is it certain times a week? How do you fit all that in? So I, I'm at the gym 6am every morning. Well, I, fight, I, so I train five days a week. Okay. So I do resistance training five days a week. I also do cardio daily as well. Um, but I've got a bit of a gym at home, so I do my cardio at uh, home. Okay. You still do uh, keep your hand in with any boxing? No, no, not really. It's more, I, I enjoy more resistance weight training now. Um, I think there's a lot more to it than people understand, like the body, body bodybuilding style trains. There's actually a lot of technique to it. And I've just become, I'm quite, I'm quite obsessive with things. Okay. Um, and, and you've got a proper got, routine. It's not, oh, I'll just do this today and a bit of that. It's like, I know exactly what I'm going to be doing at the gym. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've got a coach who oh, okay. sets my program. Like I said, I, well, I'm massive on mentors and massive on coaches. So I've got my fitness coach who does my nutrition. He does my training plan. He tells me how many steps to take every day. He tells me how many need cardio to do every day. But it's constantly evolving and changing depending on what the goals are. I mean, I just had a photo shoot on Thursday, which I've been prepping for 20 weeks for. Um, I was in, I'm 36 and I was in the best shape, like hands down than I've ever been in. Well, I've seen uh, on the nutrition side, there was me tucking into what Paul got us, like some giant cookies, but you were there, you had like rice, pasta, <laughs> broccoli and yeah. stuff. And I was like, that's why he looks like that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Amazing discipline that is. Yeah, but I, I love it. And I love, I, I, I thrive off the routine of it as well. So like I said, I, I love routine. I, I feel there's a lot of freedom in structure. There's sort of, um strange as that sounds no i know exactly but, what you mean but for, for me like i said having a coach having someone there they take all the guesswork out of it for me so literally all i have to do i just have to turn up and tick the boxes like i'm not saying it's easy because it's not but it's simple and would you and say that's some of that how i try and run my life and would you say some of that would you say your fitness coach is is down to accountability as well as giving you the program to work to are there days where you think I might skip it, but obviously you can't let him or her down. And that's another benefit. Yeah, 100%. So there's that. And that is why I booked the photo shoot. I've never done anything like this before. Okay. So just a bit of clarity for the listeners. So basically I had a physique style fitness photo shoot on Thursday just gone, where I basically had some tiny shorts on, covered in fake tan, covered in baby oil, um, posing in a gym while a professional photographer took photos of me. And it sounds really alien and really strange to a lot of people that have never done it. And it did to me when it got suggested to me by my coach last November. I'm like, I ain't doing that. And he's like, I'm telling you, it'll keep you focused. And it did. Literally for 20 weeks, from the 9th of January until the 1st of June when I had the shoot, I was lasered in. I have never been, and it, it sounds really strange when I say this, I was constantly, we were constantly dropping my food. All the way through, I got down. Um, I got down to around five percent body fat by the end of it. I was absolutely peeled inside out. So, what? How many calories are you on by the end of that? So, at the end of it, I was on two thousand calories training days and sixteen hundred rest days. But I mean, my my training consisted of an hour and a half intense heavy right. weightlifting, uh, bodybuilding style, so resistance training. Right. Okay. And and I also did sixty minutes cardio every day. And 16,000 steps. 16,000 uh, steps on top of the cardio? Yeah. Shit. Yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. Good idea. Because so, I've, I've seen a photograph you showed me. I, did, I can't remember how many years ago it was, but you, you're basically a lot younger and you weren't in the sh- anywhere near the shape you're in, you're in now. Um, yeah. so, so was there something that started that journey transformation before you know, the, the photo shoot and all that? What made you kickstart that aspect of your life? So it started, I started thinking about it when the boy, so I was mass, I used to be massively overweight. I mean, I'm five foot nine. Um, at my worst, I was 120 kilo. I was huge. I was out of breath climbing the stairs. I was in such bad shape. And it starts me when my boys were born, June 2018. I was like, look, I don't want to be a fat dad. I, I, and I want to see my kids get older and grow up. And I want to be able to chase them around the garden and kick a ball with them and, um, and, but then they were in hospital for two weeks when they were born because they were in NICU. That was horrendous. But so they spent two weeks in hospital in intensive care. Shit. So then I was like, when they get home, I'll start. Then they got home and then the sleepless night started. 
Then I was like, oh, I'll wait till they start sleeping. And then I blinked and then a year had gone. And what was the catalyst for me was my mum got diagnosed with terminal cancer in the summer of August the 4th, 2019. And basically a doctor said to my mum, listen, you've got two years and you're going to be dead. That happened. And you're in Abu Dhabi, obviously, at this point. I was, yeah, I was in Abu Dhabi. And then literally an hour later, I got a message and I had this realisation moment then of my mum has had her health and her life and her chance to see a grandkid grow taken away. Sorry. Oh, I, yeah. <clears throat> take, your, take your time, man. I just thought, look, she's had that choice taken away from her and her health taken away from her. And I didn't want to waste mine. And I wanted to see my kids grow up. And that was the switch. Yeah. And then, call it fate, call it whatever you want. Literally an hour later, I got a message off my first coach um, on on Facebook, basically just saying something along the lines of, I help busy professionals lose weight, get their life in order, see the family this, build their engine, blah, blah, blah. Just a sales page. Um, and I reached back out to him. I said, just send me the payment link. I'll pay you. I'm in. He's like, let's jump on a call. I'm like, no, I'm in. He's like, but you know how much it costs? I'm like, I don't care. Like, this is more important to me than money. Um, and that when it all started, when I started working with James, worked with James for two years. And then I just fell in love with it. Like I said, I fell in love with the routine I fell in love with, and I'm a numbers man as well. So every day, and I still do this day, I get weighed every single day. Every day I was seeing that number on the scales get less. Every week when I was sending my checking photos, my belly were getting smaller. Every time I went in the gym, the num like, and I, I track all my numbers in the gym. So the number of reps were increasing. Then when I get to the top of the rep range, the weight increases. So it's, those little micro wins that tell me that I'm moving in the right direction. Um, and that's what I've become obsessed with is just chasing that. Absolutely. Um, I, I remember when I, um, I drove up to South Shields to do a podcast with Paul Mort and he said, mental health needs physical support, um, which I, I don't know whether that's a popular line, whether Paul just came up with that, but I was like, okay, now that's so true. And so, have you seen on the back of your fitness journey seen other aspects of your life you know uh, mentally or in business improve on the back of it or what, what kind of changes have you seen so for me now my health is paramount to everything that i do so when i'm healthier and fitter i feel happier i'm less stressed i handle net potentially negative situations better i'm a better dad I'm a better role model. I'm a better husband. I've got more energy so I can get more out. And this was an excuse I used at the time. I've not got time to go to the gym. I'm too busy. But it was only when I started investing an hour and a half a day in the gym that I bought myself an extra two or three hours with higher energy throughout the day. Um, I sleep better when I'm training as well, which also then increased my energy for the day after. So you just see have this knock-on effect and... Why I did uh, another thing that I didn't, I don't think I lacked confidence when I was overweight, but I realize now I'm much more confident in myself and much more assertive now. And 
Look, whether people like to admit this or not, the second you look at someone, whether conscious or subconscious, you judge that person. Absolutely. You make an assumption of that person of what they are like and whether you want to do business with them. And again, this is not something I realised with when I was massively overweight and I got my shirt gaping here. But people, a lot of people must try to do it now. Like a lot of people must have looked at me and thought, I'm not working with that slob. As that, now, that, that is a, a harsh reality of life. Yeah. As now, I actually get a lot of people reach out to me saying that I really respect what you do because I share my story on my health and fitness. Mm -hmm. I, I love it. It's a passion of mine. So I talk about it quite a bit on social media. And I get a lot of people reaching out to me as much as the finance side of things as the health and fitness as well and saying, look, I want to work with you because you clearly take this serious. You're clearly very disciplined. Yeah. You clearly run a very balanced life. Family's important to you. Health's important to you. And you're the sort of person I wanted a business with. Yeah. I mean, so again, that was a big realisation. I suppose being a parent as well, I was reading yet another report, like just the other day, about the activity levels of the parents, especially the mum, for whatever reason, have a direct influence on how active their children are and the decisions they make with their health. Um, and obviously, I guess, you know, we're all about leading by example rather than just telling kids what to do. It's like to show them what to do. And hopefully, sort of, well, I'm sure, well, hopefully my fitness journey, your fitness journey certainly must be very, uh, very impactful on, you, on your family. Yeah, yeah. And, and my wife as well. Like, my wife's massively into it. So, like, when the kids get up in the morning, if it's before quarter past seven, they know that daddy's at the gym. I then get in from, the, they see me get in from the gym every morning with my gym bag. At nights, like, my wife goes in the afternoons. So I do the bath and bed routine most nights, and my wife goes to the gym then. So they know mum is going to the gym. So then they also see sort of the food we eat. They see how we eat. They see, like, they see us going out with the dogs to get our steps in. Like, and it, this might sound very intense to a lot of people, but this is the life we live. And it's what makes us happy. It's like what we enjoy doing. We enjoy feeling better. But flash forward five or six years ago, me and my wife were out on the piss every weekend getting absolutely blind drunk in, in the Middle East. Um, so we've, we've done both sides of it. But like I say, now we're much more content. We're not hung over at the weekend. We've got much more energy for the kids at the weekend. Um, and like I said, we try and lead by example. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, I mean, my wife and I had done the party thing in London, not, not quite the same as Abu Dhabi, but yeah, we, for about 10 years, like yeah, on the piss all the time, working in the media industry was great. Um, we gave up drinking for, we did over two and a half years. And now we drink maybe once a fortnight, once a week, but literally a couple of glasses and that's it. It's by choice. Which, I mean, I appreciate some people maybe can't have just the one, but for us, that's mu a much more fulfilling way to live than what we used to do. It was great when we did it, but now we've just got other priorities. Um, and you know, I guess it's hard not to preach because everyone does seem to be giving up something like everyone is giving up booze. If you drink caffeine now, you're a loser and all this stuff. And, you know, maybe you've got to have a couple of vices. But I mean, what, what's your kind of situational change with something like alcohol? So I see alcohol now as I was I would never say I was an alcoholic, but I got to the stage where I was drinking just for the sake of drinking and it, the negative impact of that was the day after my my energy was low, which meant that I was snapping at the kids. So I weren't as good a dad. And I wouldn't want to train the next morning. 
And then I'd eat shit the next morning. And most nights I'd eat shit. At the end of a skinful, I'd be trying to find the lo- local kebab house when your inhibitions are out of the window. So I'd eat shit in the night and have all these extra calories, which I didn't need through the actual alcohol itself. I wake up the next morning. I would then eat shit all day. And then it would just like this perpetual cycle. And then the week after I'd probably do it again. And it was just like, I'm working my ass off for five days a week in the gym. And then two days a week, I'm basically just wasting that week. Um, so I just sort of looking like that. And I now drink, well, at Thursday. So after the shoot Thursday, I had all intention I, with with the lads after having a skinful. Um, I had two cocktails and I was just like, you know what, I've, I've, I've had enough. I, I'm not interested. In bed by eight watching Vera or something, yeah. Pretty so, much, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. We, li- we literally went for a curry in the evening. And then throughout the curry, I was like, lads, do you mind if I just go back to the hotel and go to bed after this? And I'm like, no, no, of course not. So I, I would talk to my bed by half nine. Blimey. Uh, just going naked. But that's the first time I had a drink since Christmas. But Blimey. what I now do, don't get me wrong, I, I do enjoy having a drink. Like, I love nothing better than an amaretto sour, um, especially when me and my wife are away for the night, away from the kids. But I, I plan it again, goes down to planning. I plan it in and I book it in the diary. Because if I don't book in the diary, a drink tonight might lead to a couple of drinks tomorrow if there's a few beers left at the house if we've had a barbecue. So I make sure it goes, it's pre-planned in the diary. It's like, all right, this is the date I'm drinking this quarter. And then I stick to it. It's interesting. I mean, one of the things we do with with a brand new client is like, look at look at their growth journey. And like I say, it's it's all about planning. And and it's amazing how, how many business owners, they don't have a plan for anything. They, they want to earn more money but they go around in circles because they don't know where they're going or they want to get fitter or whatever it might be. And even though it might sound a bit twee these days because everyone on Instagram seems to be journaling or whatever, but unless you write stuff down, where you want to go, how you're going to get there, what are the non-negotiables, it's just, you're just making life a lot harder for yourself. But I guess maybe some people, they just think it's a load of bollocks, a load of woo-woo stuff, or they're just not willing to change. Maybe they're just not coachable. Um, but I mean, what kind of a difference has it made to you? Like your Sunday meetings, for example, you and your wife, you sit down, what kind of an impact has that had in terms of doing the stuff that you want to do? Oh, massive. Because if you take that Sunday meeting, Sunday meeting into account, we both know exactly what our jobs are for that week. We both know where the other one's going to be. Something about control. But we both know like when other ones at appointments or... I need to do the school run today or she needs to do this or I need to do that. So again, so we, we, we cover for each other with it. So it's not, we're never coming into a Wednesday morning. It's like, you need to pick kids up at X. I'm like, you didn't tell me about that. Yes, I did. I told you, I told you three weeks ago, yeah, yeah. why ain't in your diary sort of thing. So every Sunday, both of us calendars are up together and we sync them to make sure that we're both on the same page. Nice. Um, and it, what, and it, what, what gets written down gets done like you say i think you mentioned yeah. date lunch right this is where and my mum laughs because she thinks it does sound that you mentioned control it does sound like nothing spontaneous it's control it's like well no just it means we can do the stuff we want to do like going out for a coffee going out for a date lunch otherwise it's the end of the week and shit we haven't spent any time together yeah or even worse i mean and i said this to some of my friends as well and they, they, laugh, they laugh at me when i tell them about our sunday morning meetings but <laughs> I'm like, all right, when was the last time you and your wife went out for a proper date? And you see them scratching their head. I'm like, I can tell you exactly the last five ones we went on just by getting my phone out it's in there. It's done. And and you know yourself, if you don't plan it in, if it's like, oh, should we go out at some point? Yeah, yeah, we'll go out at some point. And then a week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. Then all of a sudden it's like, do you know what? We've not spent any time together for the last two months. And we were guilty of it as well. And one thing I've always said 
And one thing my dad always said to me when I was a kid, or always growing up and before we had kids is, when you have children, your life ends. All about the kids. One thing my dad's always said. And that has been something, don't get me wrong, I adore my kids. Mm. I'll do anything for my kids. But I will, and I've always said this to Laura, I will never, ever, ever be just a parent. Mm. Ever. I I need my own life. And we need a life together, me and my wife, as well as the kids. Mm -hmm. Because I'm a big believer. If if I'm not not 100% myself, I've got nothing to give other people. So... Again, that's something I've always been very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? That, that's always something I've had a big focus on, is making sure that, especially me and my wife, we never become just parents. We are Joe and Laura. And Joe and Laura need time as Joe and Laura. No, I totally um, agree. It's, it's putting your own oxygen mask on first. But, but sometimes I think maybe on social media, you just get a distorted view. It does look like if you're a parent and you do stuff without the kids or whatever, you're a shit parent, but it, it's, it's really like me, you know, you and your wife have been together for lots of years. Me and my wife have been together for like over 20 years. And it's like, yeah, cause we are a bloke, a lady, a husband and wife, and we are also parents. That's a big part of our life, massive part. Yeah. And like we do anything, but it's not a hundred percent. Yeah. I completely agree. Um, and look, like, like I said, I love them to bits, but you know, your kids are intense, aren't they? <laughs> so, wait, wait to the teenage years. I mean, <laughs> I mean, hopefully I've learned some lessons today because when you talked about teaching your your twins who are like five about money, I'm like, oh shit, will my two girls just come to me and say, dad, dad, I'll get the fair, can you lend me 20 quid or dad? And and well, teenage daughters, I I basically just give them the money and Joel will sit next to me and, and he's, he'll say, I'm aware I haven't got children, but he's like, you shouldn't be doing that. And it's like, oh, I know, but right. I'm going to, to be strong when I get home now. Like yeah. they, I'd like to think they understand the importance, the value of money. This is what something costs and this is what daddy has or mummy has to do to earn that money. But yeah. sometimes when it's like, no, no, if you want me to give you 10 quid, you need to wash the car, or do something. Um, yeah, and, and I'm, I'm all for sharing with the kids as well and talking to the kids because, again, you said it yourself, kids copy what you do, not what you say. So if, you, if you're stressing about money, they see that, they sense that. If you've got red letters coming through the post, they see that. They might not understand what they are, but they'll remember them red letters. And when they see their first red letter that's for them in the future and they open, it's like, shit, is that what mum and dad used to stress about all the time? Like, if bailiffs coming to your door, kids remember that. So, like, little things like, I mean, I've got quite a few rental properties, so if I will go to the letting agents or solicitors or anything, I'll take the kids with me. So I want them to know that yeah. this is what daddy does. This is where daddy invests his money. This is sort of what we do to protect ourselves. Um, so I try and, like I said, they are very young, but I try and have these conversations with them, which will only increase as they get older. I, I, I explain to my kids what we do and, I mean, my kids can actually explain what I do. Um, well, the boys can anyway. Wow. Um, on how I help people protect their family's financial future. Like, w- whether they understand it or they just remember it parrot fashion, I'm not 100%. But they can tell people what I do. And, like, they love making the videos with me. So I've done quite a few videos where I bring the boys in. Like, we've done one where we talk about inflation using Smarties. We've done one where we talk about paying off debts using M&Ms. We've done one where we talk about bull and bear markets. Jasper's dressed as a 
uh, Henry was dressed as a bull sort of thing. So they love making the videos with me. Nice. nice. Um, and I'm so trying to get them as involved as possible. And I suppose most of your maybe ideal clients are, are family people themselves. Yeah. Kids and dogs. People love them. Oh, yeah. So, well, you mentioned, <laughs> you mentioned dogs. I didn't, didn't know you had dogs. But, yeah, I, obviously, you know, they can be a bind. But in terms of make you get up that you know my, my kids now when I come back from work they generally don't rush to the door but the dogs always do and you get that nice welcome uh, no matter whether it's pissing down freezing cold they need their walk so you get your steps in and we go on holiday but not maybe as much as some people because being at home with our family with our furry family that's like a holiday itself and and in yeah. in our hall there's a framed print and it's bless this house with love and laughter and and I think you know as parents, obviously that massive responsibility because so much stuff you said, you're like, oh, that's my dad. So much to my shame when my dad was alive, I didn't think he taught me that much. But when I look back, I'm like, shit, that was dad. Oh, my dad. One of the big things we always say here is about when it comes to especially selling, people talk and they don't listen. But my dad, years and years ago, and it was to do with dating before my first date, and my dad, I, I just assumed he'd be the last person to go to for dating advice. This, you know, this little Indian bloke. And um, he said, God gave you two ears and one mouth. Use them in that ratio. And that is something I just talked to the team about all the time. And I was like, shit, that yeah. was for my dad. And that was for my dad. And it's weird how you, how you look back and realize that so much of our thinking and our, and our habits are formed in those, in, the, in, the, in those early years. And it's a massive responsibility, but yeah. a, a privilege as well. So it's a, I really think we put the world um, to rights here, Joe. Um, got a couple of quick fire questions for you that yeah. I know aren't pre-planned. So I'm going to put you on the spot. But before okay. I do that, what is the best place for listeners to find out more about you and what you do? Best place is Instagram. So it's Joe, J-O-E underscore family wealth one zero one. Excellent. Excellent. We'll make sure we put that in the show notes as well. Definitely go and follow Joe on Instagram. So got a couple of quick fire questions for you here, Joe. Let's go. Right. What's your favorite film and why? Oh, nobody will have heard of this. So it's a, it's a film called The Power of One. Oh. Um, nobody will have heard of it. So my wife, actually, she... So, okay, so it was a, it's an old boxing film. And Morgan Freeman's actually in it, but when he was much, much younger. Um, and it's about a young South African lad, white South African lad, growing up in, a, in South Africa in, like, this Nazi school and how he boxed and how his coach was Blimey. a black South African amazing film amazing film when i had it on a video as a kid and i watched it that many times it just the vcr just ate it and i remember speaking about this every everyone that ever listens i'll talk about this film all day i love wow. it and then one day for my birthday my wife managed to find uh, a dvd version of it so i've actually got it in dvd oh, i'll bring it to the next meeting so without knowing anything about it is it what based on a true story or is it a fictional yeah. oh wow yeah. right i'll need to look that up then brilliant yeah, excellent power- the power of one is called the power of one um lastly what's the best mistake you've ever made oh do you know what probably overspending in my 20s ah. um and like i say it took me going through sort of the ivf and mm. basically running out of money before i then realized that it wasn't because of all these additional IVF costs. It wasn't because the market was down. It was because of the poor life choices I had made until that point that got me there. And that for me was a big realization. And when I also then tried to stop, find the positive out of every negative. 
Wow, blimey. Joe, deep stuff. It's been a pleasure. Hope you've enjoyed it. Lots for our listeners yep. to take. I appreciate your time very much. And I will see you soon. Thanks again Fantastic. for being on the Take care, mate. Cheers, Joe. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.